presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our second session on the sovereignty of God, Lessons from the Life of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, again, just by way of review, remember that to uh, speak of God's sovereignty is simply to say that God rules. He rules absolutely in creation, He rules in providence, and He rules in grace. There is not one molecule, there is not one person, there is not one moment that escapes His notice, no one no thing is able to thwart his intentions. He reigns over both the mighty and the minuscule. Again, by way of review, uh, when we think about a definition for sovereignty, uh, Webster says this, it means supreme in power, rank, and authority. It's independent of all others. Certainly, sovereignty is a basic attribute of God. A passage that we read last time, and I'd like to reread for this session as well, comes from Isaiah 14, verses 24 and 27. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. For the Lord Almighty has proposed or purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Yes, who indeed? And of course, the answer is no one. And as we saw last week, as we drew the uh, study to a conclusion, God is sovereign in every aspect of life. He certainly is sovereign in the salvation of individuals. A good verse, uh, and I put it there in your notes, is from Romans chapter 9, verses 16 through 18, where Paul writes, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. Well, what purpose is that? Here Paul tells us, and he's quoting from Exodus, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Uh, some people don't like the fact that this is in the Bible and try to explain these verses away and say, well, that just has to do with nations. It doesn't have to do with individuals. But the truth is it has everything to do with individuals. You've got two individuals there in Exodus. You've got Pharaoh and you have Moses. And a lot of people get upset about this and say, well, the problem is, is it just bothers me. It just doesn't seem like God is being fair. And generally, when they say that, they mean that God isn't being fair with Pharaoh because it says, uh, the Scriptures in Exodus, and as Paul quotes here in Romans, that God hardened his heart. But remember, when you begin to talk about fairness, fairness means that we get what we deserve. Now, as sinners, what is it that we deserve? Well, we deserve the judgment of God. We, be, we deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity. So when you think about Moses and Pharaoh here at the same time, and you say, well, now, which one of them deserve to receive God's mercy? The answer to that should be apparent. Neither of them deserve to receive God's mercy. Why? Because they were both sinners, and sinners deserve the wrath of God. 
So, what did God do? God dealt in fairness. He gave Pharaoh what he deserved. What was it Pharaoh deserved? He deserved God's judgment. And certainly God's judgment came on Pharaoh and his household, and in fact his whole nation. Well, you say, but uh, what about this fairness issue? Well, God didn't deal in fairness with Moses because Moses was a sinner also, and if God had given Moses what he deserved, then he would have poured out his judgment on Moses as well. He dealt with Pharaoh in terms of fairness or justice. He dealt with Moses in terms of mercy and grace. And God is free to show mercy and grace uh, to whom he will. And of course, the way he can do that and still remain a righteous God is that he has paid for all of the sins of all of those upon whom he will show mercy in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll explore that a little more later. So God is sovereign in the salvation of individuals, but he's also sovereign in the rise and fall of political powers. And again, I read from Jeremiah 27, there in your notes in the left-hand column. This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, with my great power and outstretched arm. I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it. And I give it to anyone I please. Notice, God doesn't ask permission to give uh, nations to some individual to be in charge under his authority. He gives it to whom he pleases. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And as we talked about last time, remember at this point when God says this, of course uh, this is a future event that he's, that he's talking about. It's, uh, the Babylonian captivity has not occurred yet. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer. Uh, he was a pagan. He worshipped uh, Babylonian gods. And uh, so when God calls him my servant, he says, look, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do what I tell him to do. He may not realize at the time that it's me telling him to do it, but he is going to do it. And if you'll recall, we sort of uh, talked about some of the same things in terms of uh, Caesar Augustus when it was time for uh, the Messiah to be born uh, in order to get uh, uh, Mary to where she needed to be to fulfill prophecy. Caesar Augustus uh, decided he needed to have a census. And the result of that was to get Mary exactly where she needed to be so that the Messiah would be born where Micah had prophesied centuries early that that baby would be born. Um, we see the same thing that God using uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, God using Herod, uh, God even used Judas to accomplish uh, his will. And then notice the passage also from 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. And this has to do with, uh, with when uh, David's favorite son, Absalom, the really good-looking kid, decided that he would uh, uh, try and, uh, and attempt a coup against his father. And here in 2 Samuel 17, it says, Absalom and all the men of Israel said... The advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. And just not to get into all of the background, but remember David was having to flee from Jerusalem because Absalom and his troops were coming in. 
And so what David did was he asked this guy, Hushai, the archite, to remain in Jerusalem and be, as it were, sort of a double agent for him. He said, uh, you know, you just, you just listen to what Absalom has to say, and then you can report that to one of the priests. They can tell their son, one of their sons, and their sons can act as a runner and come out and kind of let us know what's going on here in Jerusalem because we got to get out of town right now. So that's, that's the background generally. But notice what it says. Uh, it says, for the Lord, and notice, all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The self-existent one, one who needs nothing, the I am. He says, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. God is in control. Looks like to David, God's not in control. He's having to leave town because Absalom, his, his favorite son, is risen up with, in arms against him. And there are a lot of people wanting to take his life. But God has a plan. He, he did frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. And as a result, Absalom followed really bad, bad advice. And as a result, the war uh, was lost, and David uh, uh, assumed his throne once again. Remember also, uh, in terms of Nebuchadnezzar and God's sovereignty, that in our session last time from Daniel chapter 2, God had given um, Nebuchadnezzar a revelation uh, through a dream. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, was troubled by his dream and wanted to understand what it meant. And through an interesting chain of events, before it's all over, Daniel is the one who tells Nebuchadnezzar, told Nebuchadnezzar his dream and what his dream meant. And the, the basic, um, the, the nutshell version of what the dream meant was that God was the one who had given Nebuchadnezzar his position. Remember, you are that head of gold. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says, Promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He sets up one, he puts down another. God is in control. And furthermore, in Daniel chapter 2, remember the dream that he had had was a multi-metallic image, uh, an image, uh, a head of gold, and uh, the, the shoulders were made of silver, uh, and then the uh, belly and thighs were of bronze, and the legs were of iron, and then the feet were of composite material of iron and clay, and they represented various empires. And, but he, but God himself, through Daniel, told Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. In other words, you are part of what I'm doing. You, I gave you this position, and in this dream, you are the top part of the dream. Now, there are going to be other empires that will come along. And so uh, the point is, is that God was saying, you are part of my plan. Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the plan, but you are part of the plan. And remember Nebuchadnezzar's response, and that was that initially he said, well, you know, Daniel's God is, uh, is better um, in many ways than, uh, than anything I've seen around. He certainly is special. But as we'll see today, uh, essentially all Nebuchadnezzar did was simply uh, add the God of Daniel, the true God, to his pantheon. And uh, because what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 3 is that in spite of understanding that 
from the vision that he had had or the dream that he had had that he was part of God's plan, Nebuchadnezzar is in essence saying, well, really, that may be what the God of the Hebrews has in mind, but I really have a better plan because I am the plan and it all is around me. Remember, uh, one of the things about Nebuchadnezzar is that as an Eastern monarch is that he was a uh, he was a very proud and arrogant kind of man. So the uh, remember just uh, and again just to sort of set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. Remember that uh, Daniel is enrolled in the king's school. He he and his friends had been brought there during the first deportation from uh, from Judah to Babylon. And uh, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 and following, um, he talks about this troubling dream. He tells the king what his dream was and then explains what the king uh, is should be doing. Uh, and there's a little bit of difference. In our next session, in our final session in chapter 4, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar has another dream that God gives him. And this time, instead of being a troubling dream, it will be a terrifying dream. But what we're looking at today in Daniel chapter 3 is, um, is we're, again, we're looking at lessons uh, from the life of Neb King Nebuchadnezzar that pertain to the sovereignty of God. Last time we saw that he heard about the power of God. That is, he heard it from the lips of Daniel as Daniel explained all of these things to him. Today, in this session... Nebuchadnezzar is going to see the power of God because he's going to challenge this God of the, uh, of the Hebrews. And uh, in Daniel chapter 3, it is, uh, I think, also interesting that Daniel is not present. Now, whether he was on vacation at the Dead Sea or what he was doing, we just don't know. But he is not here, but certainly his, uh, his three friends are. And so that's what the story is all about. Let's begin with Daniel chapter 3. Um, and verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now that sounds uh, 90 feet high and what was it? Uh, 15, 9 feet wide. Uh, that sounds like an obelisk really, you know, like the, uh, like the Washington Monument, something like that. The difference was this was an image of gold. Now, it, it, certainly it wasn't solid gold, but it was an image that he had had manufactured and apparently had covered it with gold. Now, th think about the connection of this with what we saw last time in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, there was a multi-metallic image and only the head of the image was gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has set up his own image. It's a very tall image. And instead of just the top of it being gold, the whole thing is gold. So essentially, Nebuchadnezzar, again, is saying, well, I really have a better plan. God may think uh, that I, he's just put me in as the head here, but I'm going to be the I'm going to be the main guy. Let's see what happens. So he's, he set up this image of gold. It says he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image. Um, it says, so all of these people, we'll just call them the bureaucrats. So the bureaucrats and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. 
Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, mind you, this is not a suggestion. This is a command from the king, and he had all authority there in Babylon. So there's the order. There's the command. Well, what if you don't do it? What are the consequences if you don't? Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, why fire? Why throw them into a furnace? Why not just cut their heads off or, uh, you know, rip them to shreds and tear down their houses? We read about those kinds of things a lot. Here, the consequence for disobedience was a furnace of fire. And I think the reason for that is that the Babylonians worshipped a fire god. Remember from our study last time, um, one of these three guys whose name was Azariah, and his name was changed to Abednego. The name Azariah means Yahweh is my help, or Yahweh is, uh, is my keeper. And, uh, and the, the name Abednego means servant of the shining fire. Fire was one of the deities that these people, these Babylonians, worshipped. So he's saying, look, if you don't fall down and worship me, I'm going to feed you, as it were, to, uh, to, this, uh, to this god of fire. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, now here's where the plot really begins to get interesting. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. That sounds like they really love the guy, don't they? You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears all this musical sound must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. Now, now why do you suppose they would do that? Well, remember, one of the things that we saw at the end of chapter 2 of Daniel is that... Um, is that Daniel was promoted because he was able to tell the king his dream about the multi-metallic image and also explain to him what it meant. But, in fact, let's just look at that for a minute. If you look back in Daniel chapter 2, right at the, at the end of the chapter, verses 48 and 49. In fact, that's in your notes up there in the uh, right-hand column uh, under uh, Daniel 2. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and is a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. And then remember, he, Daniel was promoted. And Daniel uh, also uh, spoke well for his friends, and they were promoted as well. And remember, that just if you were a bureaucrat who's been there for years and years working your way up through this, and these, uh, these second-year college boys 
who are studying to become spiritual advisors all of a sudden are promoted over you. And these guys didn't even grow up in Babylon. They were brought there in chains from Judah. Uh, you can imagine the jealousy and the, the rage that these guys were going through. And so now here they feel like they've got a chance to, to get rid of these guys because um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being loyal to the true God. He said they neither serve your gods um, or nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And in fact, today, there's always one of the things that happens in, in the workplace. This is always somebody who's looking for an opportunity to put a knife in our back somewhere. And that's one of the reasons that we need to do what's right. We need to, we need to serve our bosses, uh, we need, but we need to do the right thing. If they ask us to do something wrong, something illegal, something immoral, something unethical, then we, we have to draw the line there. But, and, and as we'll see, that's what, these, uh, that's what these guys were going to do. Notice verse 13, uh, page 2 of your notes. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, they weren't even present at the time. They didn't show up over there to worship this thing. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear all this music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? couple of things here. First of all, uh, about the temptation that they were facing. Uh, you know, here are these three guys. And, and again, at this point in the story, it's, it's possible that they were no longer teenagers, but chances are, if they weren't, they were in their, in their very early 20s. But, but that's, I guess in the final analysis, that's not really important. But think about the temptation that these guys were facing. They're a long way from home. They're, they're never, as far as I know, they're never going to be able to see their homeland again. So, you know, and, and it just looks like God really didn't care about them all that much. Otherwise, why would they have been carried off? I mean, it's easy to rationalize those kinds of things. Those are the sort of things that we say to ourselves. So why not just say, look, if, if I go ahead and just do what the man says and bow down, when I bow down, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to really be worshiping these, this, this image. I'm going to be worshiping the true God, but I can stay in my position of power and I can help my people. See, we can come up with all kinds of reasons for why we ought to go ahead and do this. So there's a real temptation there, and I'm glad to say, and you're familiar with the story, you know that's not what they did. Because we're always to do the right thing. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we need to remember in terms of civil disobedience is that when authority requires us to do something that the Bible forbids, or when authority forbids us to do something that the Bible requires, then we not only um, have the responsibility, we have the obligation to commit an act of civil disobedience. So, and, and then the second thing that I want to point out from that paragraph we just read, and let me read that uh, last sentence again. Notice what he says, or the last sentence and a half. He said, if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, isn't it interesting? Last time, 
at the end of chapter 2, we saw uh, Nebuchadnezzar saying, Oh, your God is a God of gods. He's a, uh, he reveals all these mysteries. And it almost sounds as if something's really happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But obviously it was not. Because now he says, let me tell you, your God is not going to keep me from dealing with you. So there's a contest here. And this is very reminiscent of the contest that took place between uh, God and Pharaoh back in the days of Moses. Remember, and I know we talked about this last time, but it's, it's applicable, applicable to this. So let me just mention it again. And that is, God sent Moses. Uh, Moses was to be God's deliverer, uh, uh, his instrument of deliverance of the uh, of the captive people, the Hebrews who were in uh, who were enslaved there in Egypt. And he said, "I want you to go down there and tell Pharaoh, stand before Pharaoh, uh, and you tell him to let my people go." But I do want you to know this. Bef- uh, when you tell him that, he's not going to let him go. And the reason he's not going to let him go is because I've hardened his heart. And the reason I've hardened his heart is because I'm going to receive glory from what happens down there. So remember, you've got all these pagan deities there in Egypt. They Remember, they worship the sun. They worship frogs. They, uh, they, they worship the Nile. Uh, just all kinds of uh, all kinds of things. That's one of the reasons that you see the things happening that happen as as uh, as Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Then the Nile was turned into blood. Hey, look what our God! Look what the God of the Hebrews did to your God that you worship. And then you got f- frogs everywhere. Well, they didn't. You know, they didn't have any frog giggings down there. They didn't go. They didn't eat frogs or kill frogs because those were those were symbolic of, of the deity um, that they worshipped. And and before it's all over, one of the plagues that came with frogs, there were just frogs everywhere. The Egyptians couldn't go anywhere without stepping on frogs and almost like having frogs ooze up between their toes. And again, what was God doing? God was showing that He was more powerful than any so-called God that was there in the uh, in the land of Egypt. And as I mentioned before, essentially what God did was over a period of months, He just turned Egypt into an agricultural and ecological disaster area. So, you know, so here's the contest. Nebuchadnezzar draws the line. I'm gonna if you don't do what I told you. I'm going to throw you in that furnace and there isn't a God anywhere who can, who can rescue you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And He will rescue us from your hand, O king, but even if He does not, We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Notice, he's saying, we refuse to bow down and worship some idol. Now, why? Well, because of the first of the Ten Commandments. You're not to have any other god before you. You're not to fashion any sort of... any sort of God. That was the covenant that they were under. And, and when you think about it, you say, well, well, I've never quite understood it. What, what's really wrong with idolatry? Well, 
if you read uh, James Packer's book, Knowing God, I think it's the chapter entitled The Only True God, he talks about uh, the problem with idolatry basically boils down to two things, and they are interrelated. First of all, idolatry dishonors God, and it also misleads people. And he uses the illustration, and it's such a good one. If you, if you haven't read Knowing God, it's a classic. I think it's been out about 30 years now, and it's one that you really need to read. Don't try to read it at bedtime, though. It's, uh, it's serious reading. But he, he, he reminds his readers of, uh, of the time while Moses was up in the top of the mountain receiving the Ten, the Ten Commandments and also receiving the pattern for the tabernacle and all of the law. Remember what was going on at the foot of the mountain. The folks were getting all beside themselves because Moses had been gone for a long time. They weren't sure what had happened to him. And they began to put pressure on Moses' brother Aaron, who was the high priest, to... Uh, to uh, to do something, and they finally said, "Look, uh, we just we want you to make us a, a god who will lead us out of this place. We don't, we don't even have a clue what's happened to Moses. We're probably never going to see him again." And uh, Aaron was not exactly a real strong leader, uh, and so what happened was they they took the gold, like the earrings and stuff like that. Aaron fashioned it into a uh, into a molten image. You remember what that image was? It was a bull calf. Now, when you think about a bull, you know, we live out in the country, and uh, when you think of, uh, so we see bulls and cows out here a lot, but when you, uh, when you think about uh, a bull, what quality, what characteristic usually comes to your mind first? It's that of strength. And so when, when Aaron made this thing, he wasn't trying to lead the people away from the true God. In fact, he was reminding them, God is uh, your great strength. He's the one who by his mighty hand has brought you out of the land of Egypt and he will lead you in. You say, well, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Well, maybe not. But see, the problem is when you look at a bull, you may see strength. But how, where do you see love? Where do you see mercy? Where do you see grace? Where do you see forgiveness? Where do you see all those other qualities? Where do you see gentleness and kindness and goodness? You know, you may you may see strength and you may see uh, some semblance of wrath if that bull gets mad. So the point is, is that that's the problem with with with. Uh, idolatry is the problem with images is that they dishonor God because they don't fully explain who God is and the only person who's ever fully explained who God is is that the Lord Jesus remember in John 14 um, if you'll just show us the Father that'll be enough for us and what did Jesus say if you've seen me you've seen the Father the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact that the Son is the exact representation of the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at Jesus. He explains Him. So uh, images uh, dishonor God because they don't fully explain the characteristics of God. But they also mislead people because we get the wrong end of the stick. We get to thinking um, that God is some other way than he really is. I mean, look at it today. 
people come up to you, you know, you you talk about Jesus and and you know, if you don't repent, uh there's there's this awful fiery place, the pit, the uh, hell that we talk about and say, Oh my goodness, the God that the God that I worship would never do anything like that. You see, they're misled. They don't understand they don't understand that God, our God is a jealous God. That our God is a uh, is not only love but he is also light. Our God is uh, is is one of purity, and when his purity and his holiness is offended, God deals in wrath with those kinds of things. So that's that's important to keep in mind. Didn't mean to go into that uh, quite so much. Uh, let me do. I do want to read one other passage that is not in your uh, that is not in your notes. And it's from Psalm 115, just the first few verses there, and it has to do with this whole issue of idolatry. He says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Notice, there's a... Uh, there's a statement of the sovereignty of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You see, that's the problem with golden calf religion. You know, a lot of people want to want to worship a god that they can go to kind of shove in the drawer, a god that doesn't have eyes and and ears, uh, that doesn't hear the things that they say, that doesn't see the things that they do, that doesn't isn't present everywhere that they are. But the truth is, the true and living God is all of those things. And when you look at a molten image, it may have eyes, but it can't see. You shove it in a drawer, and then you can live any way you please. Well, not so with the true and living God. All right, well, back to our study. Some of you didn't think we'd ever get back. <clears throat> verse, uh, let's see, that, uh, verse 19. So, so the, uh, the contest is set up. And it says, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. Notice, we saw this last time, the, the rage that, that, uh, that he had. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, so this guy's really upset, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the, command, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Notice the initial result of the king's anger. He's so upset, he heats up the furnace so hot that, he, that some of his trusted soldiers in taking these, uh, these, these uh, Hebrew guys into that area of the blazing furnace that the, that the heat just killed them. But the three, the three um, guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, make it into the furnace. It says... Uh, 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, one, two, three. Who is this fourth? Well, most people believe, and as, and, and as I do as well, that this is another what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, that there He is in the fire. You know, we, I think about that old hymn that I haven't sung it in a long time, and I'm not going to sing it now. But think about that old hymn. I think the refrain is uh, some, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some with great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Here they were in the furnace, but God was with them in the furnace. Now, would God rescue them? Sometimes, you know, we put into the furnace and we don't walk out. It depends on what God wants to accomplish. It says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. You know, what a contrast. Verse 15, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And here, what does he say? Servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Now, again, be careful. Because we might think this is some sort of confession that God alone is God. But essentially what he is saying is that in terms of the contest between the God of the Hebrews and the fire God that the Babylonians worshipped, well, it's obvious the Hebrew God has come out on top this time. Uh, and we'll see that even more clearly in, uh, in our final study of this series. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the bureaucrats gathered, uh, crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. What did those, what did those three guys say? They said, we're not going to worship. You know, our God is able to save us. He will rescue us from your hand, but even if He doesn't, we're not going to serve your gods. And what did God do? Now, God brought them through the fire. In fact, He brought them through the fire in such a mighty way, and the testimony was so great because the only thing that burned up was the, 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 the bindings that the soldiers had put on them. Their clothes weren't burned. Their hair wasn't singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. Remember, think about it. You know, it's the time of year when a lot of us who have fireplaces build fires. If you forget to open the flue, guess what happens? Smoke gets all over the place. You know, you turn on the fans and everything to get the smoke out of there. And finally, it's, it's good enough so that your eyes don't burn every time you walk into the room. But you may smell that smoke for two or three days. And, you know, and, and you go over near the curtains and you say, Oh, goodness, that smoke is in these curtains. We're going to have to get these things clean to get this odor out. These guys been in this blazing furnace heated seven times hotter. They may smell like smoke. Now, does God always deliver that way? No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. Sometimes people die in the fire. 
Sometimes people come out of the fire and they're scarred badly. And their clothes are essentially burned off of them. And they smell a lot like smoke. But God has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. Remember, uh, one of the things we talked about last time, that passage from Psalm 139, verse 16, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And then there's that great passage from Hebrews chapter 12. After Hebrews chapter 11 is, is this great uh, testimony of, of people who have been faithful to God. And then in beginning in chapter 12, it gives us the ultimate one who was faithful, and that was the Lord Jesus, who, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. But remember what it says in that same passage. It says that we are to run the race that is set before us. Now, I can't run the race that's set before you, and you can't run the race that's set before this other person. And the other person can't run the race that's set before me. Sometimes the races that we have, our various races, are somewhat different. Our trails lead us in different directions. Now, ultimately, the finish line is the same place, and that's conformity to the image of Christ. But we have different ways of getting there. You think about it. Just think about these, these prophets that we've been talking about. Daniel winds up living essentially in, uh, I don't know, I guess you could call it luxury. If it's not, it's pretty close to it. But as an advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar and later an advisor to uh, King Darius the Mede, um, it's got to be a great situation. Then you've got Ezekiel who's living with the poorest of the land. Jeremiah who's thrown into a pit and eventually... Uh, taken down to Egypt. And not even sure what, uh, what really happened to him. Maybe that's, maybe that's where he died. But the truth is, is that God has a plan for all of us, and that plan is not always the same other than the fact that the end point is the same. So here are these guys, and their lives are a testimony. In other words, what's happened? Just what uh, our lesson is all about, that... Nebuchadnezzar is seeing the power of God in action. But is that going to change his life? Sounds like it might. But as we'll see next week, his response is going to be the same. You know, after that great uh, vision of the multi-metallic uh, image, you would think, boy, that would bring him to repentance. But it didn't. His pride and arrogance. He built that huge gold obelisk. Now, he's seen the power of God in action and these three Hebrew boys safely brought through the fire. They don't even smell like fire. You say, boy, that's sure got to bring him to repentance. But as we'll see in the final session, it doesn't. His pride and his arrogance rise up again because he's got to experience God. It says, uh, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel or his messenger and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than worship 
rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Notice the great testimony that they had. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that. Uh, look for a minute in your notes, in the, uh, in the, in the left column of your notes, that uh, passage in the small print from, uh, from 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And here, here's the verse. Please, please pay attention. It's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. See, if we do evil, we ought to expect to suffer for it. But there are times that we do what's right and we suffer for it. The three Hebrew guys did what was right, and they suffered for it. Now, obviously, God was there in the furnace with them and delivered them. And that testimony certainly uh, at least seemed to make some impact on Nebuchadnezzar, although when we get to chapter 4, we see that it was not a lasting uh, impression. Notice again uh, near the end there of... Uh, of this passage in Daniel, verse 29. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice, the God of whom? The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't say, who speak against this God of mine who I'm, whom I have installed in my pantheon. No. He says, this is their God. Not my God. This is their God. Anyone who, um, I lost my place. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Notice, he's still a polytheist. As far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, there's still oh, there are other gods. Now, maybe that the Hebrew god is, is kind of the, the, the chief god on the block or something like that. But there's still, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind at this point, other gods. And then it says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So again, the, the story ends um, with promotion here. So, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has heard about God's power. And in chapter 3, he has seen God's power in action. So, what are you and I to make of all of this? I point you to our conclusion and application section there in your notes. First of all, please notice, regardless of the results of our obedience, whether, whether the results are triumph or whether they are some tragedy, the truth is, is that God is sovereign. God has not promised His people that their lives, that our lives, will be free of difficulties. Notice the passage from John 16, verse 33, where Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, trouble is inevitable. Job even said that. God has promised that He'll bring good out of everything in spite of the fact that not every event that comes into our lives may be classified as good. 
And that's that great passage from Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that verse is misquoted all the time. People say, well, you know what the Bible says, all things work together for good. No, that is not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that God causes all things. God is the mover and shaker. God causes all things to work together for good, but not for everybody. It's for those who are the call. That's the believer. Those who are called to salvation. Those who love God. That's not the unbeliever. It's only the believer who loves God and is called according to his purpose. See, again, you look back at the life of Joseph that we talked a little bit about in our last session. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he looks, Joseph looks at his ten older brothers. This is years after the fact they had sold him into slavery. And he says, when you did that, you meant evil against me. It wasn't that you just having a tough day. No, you meant evil against me. You never intended to see me again. You didn't care what happened to me, whether they killed me, what they did with me. You meant evil against me. But then there's the comma there instead of a period. And he says, but God meant it for good. See, think about it this way. There are a lot of chemicals in the world, poisons, that, that if we ingest them, they will kill us. But if you take those same chemicals that would normally be poisonous, and if you put them together in just exactly the right amount and put, a little, put them in a little gelatin capsule, they can help the plaque from sticking inside your arteries or they might help you to breathe better. It depends on what the chemicals are. See, they're put together. They're put together. And it's together that it brings about the good. It's just like you get up on uh, one morning and your, uh, your, your mother-in-law has been staying with you and you've been a little tentative about that, but you're getting along with your mother-in-law, okay? And you make your way groggily into the kitchen and you notice that there on the kitchen table is this uh, container of buttermilk and there's some lard, some Crisco, and there's some baking powder and there's some salt and uh, and some flour and eggs and uh, you know your maybe one or two other things and your mother-in-law just kind of uh, looks over the top of the paper that she's looking at and she says uh, well I hope you enjoy your breakfast and you think what kind of lousy breakfast is this well the truth is it it does look like a lousy breakfast a lot of us don't even like to drink buttermilk because that makes us sort of gag a little bit. But you think about it. You take all of those ingredients in just exactly the right amount with someone who really knows how to cook, who knows how to mix those things together in just exactly the right amount, and then that person puts them in the oven at exactly the right temperature for exactly the right length of time, and what do you get? You get great biscuits. And that's a good thing to have at breakfast. You see, none of these things by themselves look particularly appetizing. But together, they can make great biscuits. But only, but only, if the hands that are mixing these things together know what they're doing. And only if when they are put into the oven, the temperature is just exactly right. 
and only if they're left in there for just exactly the right length of time. See, the point is, is that when we feel life heating up for us, think about, thinking about this fiery furnace, when we feel life, life heating up for us, we need to remember that it's God who has his hand on the thermostat. And it will never get any hotter than he intends for it to get. And we won't be in that environment any longer than he intends for us to be. Notice also in your notes there, God has also promised that the trials and temptations that come our way will not be beyond our ability to endure them. And the quotation here is from 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you. Notice, seized. And the word temptation often uh, is, is translated by the word testing. The context determines whether it's a solicitation to do evil or it's just kind of a checking out kind of thing. No temptation or no testing has seized you except what is common to man. See, we can't say, oh, you just don't understand. No, nobody's ever been through what I'm going through. No, he says, no, it's, it's common to man. This, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So, well, it sure does feel like it. Well, he says he won't. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. Say, oh, that's what I'm looking for, the way out. But then you miss the last phrase. He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, so that you can endure. The way we learn patience, there's only one way on God's green earth to learn patience. You know what that is? It's to wait. You just have to wait. That's the way you develop patience. And the way you learn to stand up under things, the way you learn to endure things is how? You have to stay under them for a while. Now, God's provided a way. He's provided the way of escape. And what is that way? It's the way of faith. It's trusting in Him. Trusting that He's the one who's got His hand on the thermostat. Trusting that He's not going to leave us in the oven any longer than we need to be in the oven even though we don't understand it, even though we think our clothes are about to burn up and we sure are going to smell like smoke and we'll never get that odor out of our hair. The truth is, is He is the one who is in control. And then finally, the human condition, apart from a relationship with God in Christ, is so adversely affected by sin that even seeing the power of God in action, as we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, is insufficient to bring one to true repentance. God's power must be personally experienced for true change to occur in our lives. See, what the Bible teaches in Ephesians 2, for example, is that you and I, apart from a relationship with God in Christ, is that we are dead in trespasses and sins. It's not that we're sin-sick. It's not that we need some medicine. It's not, that we, uh, it's not that we're out here drowning in the ocean and we, and we need for somebody to throw us the life preserver of the gospel. No. The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. The, the, the patient is not needing medicine. The patient has already expired. The patient needs to be buried. The guy in the ocean is not floundering out there trying to grab a life preserver. No, this person is on the bottom of the ocean and his innards have already been eaten out by the little fishes. Dead in trespasses and sins. And what is it that a dead person needs? What is the primary need of a dead person? That's life. And that's what God does when He brings us to faith. He regenerates us. He breathes into our dead spirits life. And as He breathes life into us, He grants us faith, He grants us repentance, and as we come to life, 
as a result of His great mercy and grace to us. We see ourselves for the sinners that we are. We see Christ as the uh, the only hope that we have and the solution to our sin problem. And we cry out, Oh Lord Jesus, I trust in You. I believe in what You did for me on the cross. Oh Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And you know what He does? He does just that. He has mercy on us. He shows us His grace. We have to experience God's power in our lives. So what do we conclude? We conclude that God is sovereign. And the lesson we've learned this time from the life of King Nebuchadnezzar is that it is possible to see the power of God in action and to see it dramatically in action and still not have our life changed. But we need to cry out to Jesus for Him to have mercy on us. In our next and final session, we'll see what God does in the life of Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar experiences God's power in his own life. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much again for Your kindness and mercy and grace and goodness and love. Thank You, Lord, that when You paint Your characters in the Bible, You paint them just exactly as they are. Lord, thank You for the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, uh, and their faithfulness to You, their unwillingness to bow the knee to Pharaoh's, uh, I'm sorry, to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, but remain true to You. Thank You that You, in mercy, brought them safely through the fire in order to be a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, help us as we face sometimes the fiery trials that we taste that we face not not perhaps literally but figuratively help us lord to trust in you help us to know that you are able to rescue us and that we're confident that you will save us from whatever it is that faces us but even if you don't and we have to go through it that lord that you just like with those three hebrew boys that You'll be there with us because you promised us that You will never leave us and that You will never forsake us. And for that, we praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.